So Mark chapter 4. Now, what follows is uh, a transcript of a radio conversation between the U.S. naval ship and the Canadian authorities off the coast of Newfoundland in October 1995. That's how it's reported. The USS Lincoln picked up another vessel in their path and radioed a warning. It went something like this. So the Americans, please divert your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid a collision. Canadians, recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. The Americans, this is the captain of US Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. Canadians, no. I say again, you must divert your course. The Americans. This is the aircraft carrier USS Lincoln, the second largest ship in the United States Atlantic fleet. We are accompanied by three destroyers, three cruisers, and numerous support vessels. I demand that you change your course 15 degrees north, that is 15 degrees north, or countermeasures will be undertaken to ensure the safety of this ship. Canadians. Okay. This is a lighthouse. <laughs> your call. <coughs> now, that's a story that, that I've heard from the pulpit many times, <laughs> and it always makes me smile. Apparently, it's a complete fabrication. <laughs> it's an urban myth. Uh, and the details, of course, wherever you read it, vary as to which countries are, are being involved there. Obviously, the British and the Irish, or, or the Canadians and the Americans. You may have heard it before as an illustration about pride. It's certainly a good illustration about pride, isn't it? As a warning against that. But I want to use it for a different purpose this morning and try and lodge it in your heads. I want you to remember this story as an encouragement to keep on proclaiming the truth. Keep on proclaiming the gospel message, the, the Christian gospel. To keep on at the truth, broadcasting it out there, no matter how it might be received. No matter what kind of silly comeback you get. Keep going. And now to remind you of the context that we find ourselves in in Mark chapter 4, uh, we've just been in this for a couple of weeks now, we've seen a number of reactions to Jesus' ministry, to his preaching of the truth. So you have his family in chapter 3 who, who think he's losing his mind. They think he's maybe gone soft somehow. And you've got the religious leaders who hate him and who will come up with any kind of outrageous claim they can think of so as to discredit him or to, uh, to condemn him somehow. And then you, thirdly, you've got the disciples, his loyal followers gathered around him, who may not yet understand everything fully, but what they have seen, what they have heard, has been enough to make, themself, to make themselves say, yes, we're going to follow this one, we're going to trust him. Jesus is the one to follow. Jesus has the truth. And this is the point at which, again, we had last week, didn't we? Jesus gave his first parable, the parable of the sower, or probably more accurately, the parable of the soils, because it's describing different soils, isn't it? And it's a parable that reveals, once you get to the explanation of it from Jesus, what's going on in the hearts and minds of those who hear God's word, and, and why they react in different ways. And then this little parable that comes after it, that we've just had read to us, the lesson from the lamp in verses 21 and 22, 
follows on neatly from what goes before it. It's a parable, I think, about the necessity to keep on preaching the gospel, regardless of how those you preach it to respond. And that's my first point, really. It's a very simple point. I've only got two points this morning. The first is this, that lights are meant to shine. Lights are meant to shine. Jesus' disciples are to be preachers of the gospel, without exception. That is what we are to be. Now, preach is perhaps a strong word. People will often say that they object to being preached at, by which I assume they mean being forced to endure some kind of an ear-bashing from some kind of self-righteous zealot that just wants to keep spouting off whether they're interested or not. But that's not quite what I mean by preach. By preaching the gospel, I simply mean communicating it in, in various different forms. We are to be communicators of the gospel, taking it into the world. And we need to be wise enough to figure out how and when we can do that most effectively. However, having said that, don't hide behind that. Okay? We've got to keep these things in balance, haven't we? It is possible, as well I know from my own heart, to keep making excuses and finding reasons for why it might not be the wisest and best time. Now, I don't think it's stretching things too far to say that from that previous parable, the parable of the sower, that you've got a sower there who just throws that seed generously, doesn't he? He's not aiming, he's not bending down and putting it into little, little places. He's throwing it. Anywhere there's an opening, Anywhere the seed already isn't, he's going to throw it there, isn't he? And he's hoping that it's going to find its way to some good soil there, the sower. The sower is an enthusiastic broadcaster. That's what he is. It's throwing. He just wants to throw it out there. That's what we're to be like. Now, for some of us, that might mean you know, taking a school assembly or picking up a megaphone on the street. For some of us, it might mean that. But for most of us, it will mean wisely and perhaps skillfully steering, learning to steer a conversation towards the gospel. It might mean a chat over a cup of tea and talking about something other than just the weather, talking about things that really matter, talking about things of eternity with, with, with neighbours or friends. It might mean just shooting the breeze with a friend over a pint in the evening. The important thing is that we need to do it. We need to do it. Take a look at how Jesus puts it in the parable here in verse 21. He said to them, do you bring a lamp, bring in a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? <clears throat> Instead, don't you put it on a stand? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. If anyone has ears, let him hear. Now, some commentaries make a, a really big deal out of saying that Mark has constructed a sentence there to make lamp the definite article here. So we should read it as, do you bring the lamp into a room and put it under a bowl or a bed? Now, the significance of this might well be that Jesus wants his disciples to see that first and foremost he's talking about himself. Now, this seems likely, doesn't it? It's certainly true of Jesus. Jesus himself said in Mark chapter 9, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. The message of Christ, what he did and said, is light, isn't it? It's light. He's the light that comes into the darkness. People living in darkness have seen a great light. He's the light that this dark world needs to see. 
I think then that this lamp is both Jesus, clearly there, and, like the seed in the previous parable, his message. And, and the two become the same thing. We're to communicate Christ to people, aren't we? So take a look at what Jesus is saying here. Have a look at this image. Imagine living in a, a first century abode, a house in Palestine. Now, obviously, some of them were bigger and some of them were smaller, but your average farmer sort of peasant who would be listening to Jesus, he's probably just got one room in a, in a house with maybe a table and a bed uh, and obviously a couple of bits and pieces maybe. And the sundown for them is about 6 p.m. There's no street lights, very little light pollution. When it gets dark, it gets properly dark. And as soon as daylight ends, you are plunged. In, I mean, you are blinded, plunged into darkness. But you've got your trusty lamp. You've got your lamp. Everyone would have had a lamp. You can't do life without a lamp because just, everything would just stop at six, wouldn't it? You know, it fascinated us, Sarah and I, when we were in Tanzania, that you could go off into the bush, you could go hours away from sort of civilization into places where people got no electricity, no communications. They're just basically living with a fire and a hut. And yet, anywhere you go, everyone has a thermos flask. Amazing. Brightly coloured, weird, brightly coloured plastic thermos flasks. Everyone. It's seen as an absolute necessity. Got to have your thermos. How else are you going to drink hot, sweet, sweet, milky tea throughout the day if you don't have your thermos flask? It's a necessary piece of work equipment. Now, likewise, in Jesus' day, everyone would have an oil lamp. You've got to have an oil lamp. You couldn't see without it. So imagine getting the lamp ready and filling it with oil and trimming the wick and lighting it and then coming into that dark, dingy room in your house and placing it on the table and then slamming a bowl over it. Put the bowl over. Or, or putting it on the floor and then shove it under the bed. Put it under the bed. You know, actually, you know, the bowl, the bowl bothers me because the flame would be starved of oxygen and probably go out. That's just the way my brain works. But the bed thing bothers me more. Doesn't it really bother you? <laughs> I mean, that is a potential risk there. That is a fire hazard. But it's not really the point. The point is, only a fool is going to cover the lamp. Only a fool would do that. It's utterly ridiculous to cover the lamp. The lamp was made to give light. That's its purpose. That's why you, you lit it. That's why you paid for the oil. It's the reason that the lamp came into the room in the first place, was to give light. The best thing to do is to put the lamp, actually, as Jesus says here, onto a special stand, a stand designed for the job, so that you get the maximum broadcasting of light, the most light. You have the most impact on the dark room. You dispel the most darkness. And likewise, the gospel, the message of Christ, the message of salvation, Verse 22, Jesus says, whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed. And whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. God's salvation plan, the way he always planned from the start to save the lost, to save helpless sinners like you and me, well, it was obscured in the past. There's no arguing with that. It was obscured. It was spoken about. Oh, yes, yeah, spoken about a lot and alluded to and illustrated in all kinds of different ways, certainly by the prophets of old, but never revealed 
until suddenly Jesus steps onto the pages of history. And there in the flesh is salvation. There he is, revealed for all to see. Jesus brought the hidden plans of God out into the open for the world to see. In Christianity, we have full disclosure, full disclosure of how God saves sinners. That's what we have in Christianity. Christianity is not a a religion of, of hidden secrets and mysteries. It's an open religion or an open revelation, the better word, of God's truth. You know, cults and weird religious groups they're the sorts that have hidden knowledges, special, special information that you might know. In ancient mystic religions, that was how you climbed up through the ranks and you know, had power over people, rose above others. I have some divine knowledge that you don't have. That makes me more special than you. And then you have groups like the, Freem- you know, the Freemasons with the secret handshakes and such like. Only, you know, meetings only for the initiated. Not so with us. But a similar thing can creep into the church too, can't it? A while back, whilst I was working as a youth pastor, (coughs) we had a number of girls that came to our youth group from a Catholic background. And they came on a particular night where we had one of the the ministers was coming to do a grill a Christian. And there he sat in front of a group of teenagers being grilled, being given a hard time, lots of questions being thrown at him. And he was open and he answered everything. They were blown away. They'd never seen a church minister be that open to being examined and shown up, you know, and put in front and asked tough questions. You see, the Christian church is to be open. There are no secrets. There are no secrets in the church. The gospel's for all. It's for all who have ears to hear it. Doesn't Jesus make that really open? He who has an ear, let him hear. Have you got ears? That's all you need to hear. Come to Jesus for forgiveness. It's an open message, isn't it? Oh, we just had it earlier from Paula. Wasn't that a wonderful illustration there? Come to Jesus and be set free, forgiven. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done or how much you've done of it. Own up to your sin and ask him for forgiveness. The Bible says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Call on his name even today if you haven't. It's an open message. It's an open invitation. Now, the more alert amongst you will probably remember uh, that last week and the week before, we saw that the reason that Jesus started telling parables, here's where it gets slightly interesting. The reason he starts telling parables in the first place, Jesus from his own lips says, is to hide. (laughs) It's confusing, isn't it? It's to hide the truth of the kingdom from some. See, there are always going to be some who are so proud they will reject Jesus, who don't like Jesus, even against all the evidence. And Jesus keeps them, very clearly keeps them on the outside. He refers to them as being on the outside. I'm hiding things from them on the outside. But you're, you're on the inside, he says. The secrets of the kingdom have been revealed to those on the inside, his disciples. What's the difference? Well, here's the key, really, to understanding that all. These are the ones who humbly gather around Jesus, wanting to understand, and they come to him for understanding. It's to them that full disclosure of the truth is given, and that is a universal truth. It's a universal way of understanding what's going on in the Gospels, I think. 
How do you understand the gospel? How do you understand the truths of the kingdom? How will you understand what Jesus is teaching? One way, you come to Jesus. You come to him and you ask. If you don't understand, come to him and ask. He will give the revelation of that truth. And now these disciples who've been given that revelation are the ones who must let their light shine far and wide. And by the way, they too will encounter many proud, people too proud to receive God. They will encounter those who are offended by that message. And they'll encounter those who seem to receive it and look really, really promising and then they just fall away. Jesus said to his disciples, listen, Matthew chapter 5, you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill, he says, cannot be hidden. Jesus is the light. His message is the light. And we are the light. We're to bring that light into the world. A lamp in a room should not be hidden. It should not be hidden, should it? A city on a hill, did you catch what Jesus was saying earlier? A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Like a light lighthouse, it will be seen miles off. If our light is shining, it, it can't escape being noticed. That's what we should be like. That's what we should be like. The Apostle Peter wrote to the persecuted Christians who were scattered all throughout the Roman Empire, and he said this to them, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. You've got this wonderful hope. He talks about that hope in chapter 1. And then he says you've got to always be ready to, give, to tell people why. Why do you live like people with hope? Okay. So, brothers and sisters, do you feel like you've had a good pummeling yet about preaching the gospel and you've got to get on with it? Some of us will be feeling like, yeah, you know what, I could, do, I could do a little bit more evangelism. I can just about fit that into my tight evangelistic diary here with all the friends that I'm trying to pray for and reach. But others of us will be feeling, yeah, stop hitting me now. Stop hitting me with this stuff. I know I need to do this stuff. I know I need to be more open about my faith at work and at home. I know already. I, it's just hard. I, I live in it's, it's, it's really hard situations. Well, Jesus has loads of encouragements for you, and we'll see them as we go through the gospel. But there are some wonderful ones right here in this passage. See, now the parable of the sower has already told you what to expect. You can go into this with your eyes open because of that parable, can't you? Uh, and you can be encouraged. There are different ways that people will hear the gospel. And there's an encouragement of a wonderful harvest day coming, isn't there? Where there will be some abundant fruit. But there's more here. Jesus follows this parable of the lamp with another word to encourage you. This is my second point. The point is this. The more that you shine, the brighter you're going to get. The more you shine, the brighter you'll get. Take a look at verse 24. Consider carefully what you hear, he continued. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you and even more. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. Some interesting verses, aren't they? Verse 24 sounds a bit like kind of a, a karma sort of situation, doesn't it? It was probably an old Jewish saying that warned people to be careful about the way they treated others because God would see that justice is done and then some. Yeah, you just be careful. 
The measure you use to others is going to come back on you, and more. But Jesus applies it here to the proclamation of the gospel. See, there's a principle here, that the more you do it, the more blessing that you will receive. That's true, isn't it? Have you experienced that? Even when people reject our message, there's a, there's a joy in knowing that we tried, actually. You know, I've, ha- I've had afternoons knocking on doors in North Kingston that you just, it's just every door slammed in your face. But then when you get back, you know, boy, are you glad you did it and that you didn't just sort of say, no, I won't do it. There's a joy in it. There's a joy in knowing we did our part and now we can bring it to God in prayer. Something to pray about now. Those people that rejected me, I can pray for them now. The joy, but the joy when someone receives Christ, I mean, that's rejoicing in heaven, isn't it, as Jesus says. When the seed goes into that good soil and the fruit starts to be produced, there's no greater joy, I don't think, as a believer. The evangelist John Chapman used to say that one convert was enough to keep him going for the next 10 years. It's true. You've just got to remember these good things, don't we? You may be aware that there are two great bodies of water in Israel. You ever seen a map of Israel? Two great bodies of water that are sort of joined together by the Jordan River. So you've got this site, you've got one up in the north, then you've got the Jordan River comes down and another one down in the south. The Sea of Galilee is up there in the north and water flows into that uh, great lake from an inlet probably not that far from where Jesus was telling these parables. The other sea down there in the south, that's the Dead Sea. It's a good name for it. It's so salty that, that nothing can live in it. You've seen photos of that where people just lie and float on it and there's so much salt in it you can float at the surface. I'd love to go and do that. Sounds great. Nothing can live, hence the name, dead. What's the reason? Why is it a Dead Sea? Well, the water that flows into the Sea of Galilee up there in the north flows out again into the River Jordan. It has an outlet. There's a constant flow of fresh water through that lake that keeps everything alive. But the Dead Sea is a dead end. There's no outlet. The water stays in and then the hot sun evaporates it, concentrating all the impurities in it, killing all the life that's within. We need to be like the former, not the latter, by the way. The good things that we receive from Christ need to be passed on not just retained. seems clear to me that there's another intentional detail there in the parable of the sower. Good soil produces fruit. That's how you know it's good soil, isn't it? And one fruit is certainly, when you plant seed, is you're going to get more seed. Seed that's ready to be sown in the next season. That's the necessary evidence of good soil, isn't it? The good soil reproduces, it multiplies. It doesn't necessarily follow that the seed it produces is going to land on good soil and produce fruit. Remember, who, remember whose job it is to prepare the soil. It's not, not the one throwing the seed. But it will produce more seed as evidence that in fact it is good soil and it will broadcast that seed. Jesus finishes this segment here by saying in verse 25, Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what he has, will be taken from him. It's an interesting saying, and it, it's used again, actually, 
in another parable that Jesus told, which Matthew records. We call it the parable of the talents. It's a funny name, really. A talent is just basically a sum of money, a, a vast, actually a large sum of money. And we're told in that story that a rich man is going on a journey to a far-off land. And so he calls his servants to him, and he gives each of them a sum of money. And he says, it says here, as Matthew tells it, it gives it to them according to their ability, according to how able they are with money, I guess, is what's being meant there. And so the first servant's obviously a very able servant. He receives five gold talents, five talents of gold, five big bags of gold. The second is given two, and the third is given one. And when the master then goes away and returns, some substantial time later, it seems, he summons each of the servants in to give an account of how they have used this treasure they've been given them. Been given a treasure, how have you used it? Now, the first has used his five to earn five more, and the second has also doubled his investment. His two have earned two more. And the master is delighted at this. He says, well done, good and faithful servants. Come and share your master's happiness. That's big, isn't it? Come and be as happy as your master. Share in your master's happiness. But when the third servant gives an account, he tells his master this. Let me read it to you. Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you've not sown, gathering where you've not scattered seed. So I was afraid, and I went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. And he just hands it back. Well, we're told his master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I've not sown and gather where I've not scattered seed, right? Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers, so that when I returned, I would have received it, at least received it back with interest. His talent is then taken from him. It's given to the one who now has ten, because even the one who has will be given more, says Jesus. And this worthless servant is thrown out into the darkness. See, that parable somewhat parallels what we've just read in Mark chapter 4. The servants of the rich man are given treasure to invest. And likewise, Christ's disciples are given the treasure of the gospel. We're we're described, aren't we, as, as treasure in jars of clay, aren't we? And we're to invest it too while the master is away. The story is encouraging though, isn't it? Because each is given a charge that is suited to their ability. They're not overburdened. There's not expectations placed on them that are unrealistic. God doesn't expect from us more than we can do. And even the most low ability servant actually could have scraped by with just leaving his talent with the bankers. So he had just a little something to show. That would have been all right. Probably he would have been told, yes, come and enter into the joy of your master. But what is inexcusable is burying our treasure, hiding our light. We must invest it. We must place the lamp of the gospel high up on a stand for all to see. Only then, will we have the joy of seeing life and growing fruit in some who hear that wonderful message. But more importantly, only then will we hear those sweetest words. Well done, good and faithful servant. Come and share in your master's happiness.